I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is a message seminar on faithful to the end, Paul's last words in light of his life and legacy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22b. That's what we'll be covering this afternoon. 2 Timothy 4, verse 22b. And even if for some bizarre reason you don't have a Bible with you, I don't know how that works at a shepherd's conference. But this passage will be easy for you to remember. Here are Paul's final words. 2 Timothy 4, 22b. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. These are the final words of Paul, and they are so devotional and powerful that really only a sermon will do it justice. However, we find ourselves in a little bit of a dilemma here. And that dilemma is this, that this is a seminar and not a session. So we have to do something a little bit nerdy, something with a little bit of an educational quality. And my solution to this quandary is what I call a lerman, a lerman. Just like breakfast and lunch make brunch and a croissant and a donut make a krona and a tiger and a lion make a liger, so a lerman is a lecture sermon. It's a combination of the two. And so in this message, I hope that we will think through the broader issues of Bible study and Paul. There will be a lecture aspect to this message, but at the same time, I hope that all that will inevitably result in exhortation, encouragement, and challenge and conviction. There will be a sermon component to this message. It's a lerman. So no one can criticize me and say, hey, why are you covering all of these technical things, all of these nerdy issues? This is a lerman. It's a lecture, sermon. And none of you also can say, well, wait a minute. Why aren't you doing that a lot more? I want more academia. Why are you trying to encourage us? Why are you trying to exhort us? Why are you trying to convict us? This is a lerman. It's a lecture, sermon. (laughs) Basically, with a lerman, I am exempt from all criticism. And I freely give it to you all to use with your own congregations. It's my shepherd's gift to you. In any case, though, I hope that you understand what we're about to engage in in this message this afternoon. With that in mind, as we think about Paul's final words that we just read in 2 Timothy 4, we should think about the power and impact of last words in general. The power and impact of last words in general. It doesn't take much investigation in church history to observe this. We can see this in the death of Polycarp. Here are his final words. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice. It's amazing. Just to the very end, he is concerned about pleasing Christ. As you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled deep theology to the very end. And he continues and says, I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved son, to you with him through the Holy Ghost be glory both now and forever. Amen. Polycarp's final words demonstrate bold faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, bold faithfulness to the triune God. His story is repeated as a model and inspiration to follow him as he follows Christ. And we don't even have to look in church history to see faithfulness. We can see it in biblical history with the first martyr for the church, Stephen. Being executed by stoning, he cries out, Lord, do not hold their sins against them. Initially, his words conform to Christ. His words imitate Christ and show love for his enemy to the end. He is faithful, but it goes one step beyond this, and Luke is intentional about this point. Namely, last words go beyond you. Last words have an impact beyond your time. Who is explicitly mentioned at Stephen's execution? 
Saul, whom we later know as Paul, who for the next several chapters of Acts, God raises up to the point where we are reading his last words this very day. This very day. Why does that happen? Well, in part, it is because God honored Stephen's last words. Do not hold his sins against him. Final words can go beyond you. They can go beyond your time. And we see that truth also in the life and death of Tyndale. We know he translated the Bible into English in 1524 to 25, and shortly there was executed by the very people he was trying to minister to. And as they wrapped the chain around his neck to strangle him and subsequently burn him at the stake, he prayed, he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Two years later, God answered his prayer in the Coverdale translation. And every English translation in one way or another is derived from Tyndale's work. On one hand, we have to understand that we can never take for granted, we can never take for granted having the Bible in English, having the Bible in our own native tongue. We never take that for granted. Anytime we open our Bible, we need to realize someone died to give that to you. Someone died to give that to you. And on the other hand, for this very reason, final words have impact beyond our time. Final words have impact beyond our time. Well, the list could go on, but there's one more particularly striking example, and that is Thomas Hawkes, condemned to die in February 1555. He and six others were condemned to die, and the other six were terrified. They were absolutely terrified. And so Thomas went up to them and said, to encourage you, I'll go first. I'll go first, and I'll give you a sign if the flame can be endured. And immediately, the six other brothers, they were very encouraged by this, and so Thomas goes first. He is first at the stake, and the flames begin and immediately take away his voice. And it seemed like the flame had utterly consumed him. And when it seemed as if he was gone, totally burned up, passed away. At the very last minute, he raises his hands to heaven, claps three times, falls to the ground, and then goes to be with Christ. And the other six brothers were tremendously encouraged because they knew by the grace of God, you can be faithful to the end. The flame can be endured and you can persevere by his grace. We learn from this that final words don't just show faithfulness and they don't just go beyond our time. They instill courage. They motivate perseverance to the end. And so last words are powerful. They show true faithfulness. They are inspiring. They go beyond their time. They take away fear and instill courage and motivate perseverance. And Paul's last words, Paul's last words are no exception to any of this, especially when you understand the context of 2 Timothy. Not only historically is it Paul's final book, but it is deliberately so from a literary perspective. It is deliberately so. You see, 2 Timothy is what we call a capstone book. It is a capstone book. It draws on what Paul has previously written and packages it together. It is a capstone book. Let me give you some examples of this. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Paul says, I am not ashamed, and then he mentions the gospel. Where have we heard, I am not ashamed of the gospel before? Romans. He is drawing from that book. The next verse, verse nine, he says, it is not by works. It is according to grace. Where have we heard that before? 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He is drawing from that book. Then in verse 10 of chapter one, he says, but now God has acted in Christ. But now, where have we heard that language before? Romans 3, 21 and Ephesians chapter two. Constantly, Paul is drawing from his previous epistles and packaging it together in 2 Timothy. This is a capstone book. And it doesn't just happen at the beginning, it happens at the end. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says this, at my first trial, everyone abandoned me, but the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. Where have we heard the language, Christ who strengthens me? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not only is this wording important because it's so striking in its absolute similarity to Philippians 4.13, but even more than that, according to Philippians 1.1, Timothy was with Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians. Timothy was with Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians. Now we know the context of Philippians 4.13, it discusses contentment, and Paul is reminding Timothy, even when everyone abandons me and I'm going to die, I am still content. Philippians 4.13, Timothy, it's true to the very end. It's true to the very end. Second Timothy, by design, is a capstone epistle. It draws from all that Paul has written and packages it together. And it does so with an explicit purpose. It does so with an explicit purpose. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And that purpose is that what Timothy has learned, he is to pass on to faithful men who will likewise do the same, who will likewise do the same. So Paul is packaging everything together to give to future generations. You could think of it this way. The role of 2 Timothy is simply this. The role of 2 Timothy is simply this. The Pauline ministry is our ministry. The Pauline ministry is our ministry. And with that reality, 2 Timothy as a whole book, as an epistle, is Paul's final words in the way that we have defined final words. It operates and functions that way. And since that is the case, how much more are the last words of the last words of Paul in 2 Timothy that way? How much more are the final words of this final word of 2 Timothy deliberately drawing from everything Paul has written, packaging it together for future generations? These last words are chosen deliberately and they are intentionally deep. These last words are chosen carefully and they are deep. And my goal for this session, this seminar, is to explore these words carefully, to understand what they mean so that we have the complete picture of faithfulness from beginning to end, and that would hopefully not only convict us, but mightily encourage us. That's the goal. Well, with that, let's look at the first word, the first word of Paul's final words, and that word is the word grace. And from this, we learn the power for faithfulness, the power for faithfulness. Now, when we think about words that are used constantly in Christianity, grace is one of those words. It may be at the top. It is so common and so frequent, we just assume that everyone understands grace. It's reflected in our preaching. We say, oh yeah, this is grace to you. Yeah, okay, it's a reading. Great, let's, okay, let's move on. And for that reason, we don't just assume in those statements that our people understand what grace is. We assume that we know what grace is because we never bother to study it. Nevertheless, this is actually a form of neglect, and it has led to some problems. We have some weird, strange definitions of grace. For instance, sometimes we just define grace as free gift. That's it. It's a free gift. Or we make it an acronym. We say, oh, this is God's riches at Christ's expense. Or we say, oh, yeah, it just means God's nice. He's kind. Be gracious like God is gracious. He's nice. 
We perceive grace as some kind of thing, some kind of stuff or some kind of attitude. But these definitions, they just simply won't work. They just won't work in Paul's assertions. If grace is just a free gift, how does that work in Romans 5.15, which says the gift of grace, the gift of a gift? What does that even mean? If grace is just God's riches, how does that work in 2 Timothy 2? Be strong in grace, be strong in riches, What does that mean? If grace is just kindness, how does that square with Romans 5, 20 through 21, which says grace reigns over death unto eternal life? Kindness overcomes death to life? What does that mean? Look, I think I'm a nice guy. I think I'm pretty nice. But do you really believe that my niceness can overcome death? What does this text mean? Grace as merely gift, riches, or niceness, they just don't cut it because they don't do what Paul says grace does. Truth be told, scholars observe that the definitions that I just provide, they actually accord more with the pagan definition of grace in Greco-Roman culture. They actually match what the Roman Catholics say grace is in church history. But whatever they do, they are not the biblical definitions and therefore they are not Paul's definition. It is for this very reason that scholars note that Paul's definition of grace, it is countercultural. It is countercultural. And isn't that the nature of grace? Isn't that the nature of grace? All this to say is we need better definitions. These definitions, they are off. They don't cut it. And we really need to rethink this matter through. And that is even more particularly the case because Paul has a lot to say about this word. Paul has a lot to say about this word. Out of the 150 times that the New Testament uses the word grace, Paul uses it 100 A hundred out of the 150 times the New Testament uses the word grace, Paul uses it a hundred of those times. Paul has a lot to say about this word. He has carefully labored to carefully define it and we do well to pay attention to what he means. Now, full disclaimer, this is where the learning becomes lecturish. But I hope that we don't just understand how to do a Bible study better and a word study better. And we don't just understand Paul and grace better on a generic level, but that we understand why he uses it one last time one last time in the final words of 2 Timothy chapter four. So what do we need to know about grace? Well, here's the first and fundamental thing we need to know is that the word grace is based upon the Hebrew word loving kindness in the Old Testament. The word grace is based upon the Hebrew word loving kindness in the Old Testament. And you say, how do you know that? Well, the great translations of the time, they consistently translate the word loving kindness as mercy. But the New Testament says, no, 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 that's not how we're gonna do it. That word is grace, not mercy. And in doing that, they say, loving kindness is what we mean when we use the word grace. And thus, when we use the word grace, it is grounded in loving kindness. Let me give you an example of this. In Exodus 34, God says, I am full of loving kindness and truth. And then the Greek translations of the time, they say, mercy and truth. But you all know what John says about the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter one. You know the wording. It does not say that Jesus is full of mercy and truth. It says that he is full of grace and truth. By that, the New Testament says, this word does not mean mercy. It is what we mean by grace. And when we use the word grace, it is grounded in the word loving kindness. So the question is, what does loving kindness mean? And here we run into a problem because we have the same problem that we have with grace. People just give goofy ideas of what loving kindness mean. They say covenant love, covenant faithfulness, promise-keeping love, love, nice, forgiving. 
we have no idea what this word is talking about. Really, we have come to square zero, maybe square negative, and we need to start all over again. So what does loving kindness mean? And by extension, what does grace mean? The best way to approach this is to tell you what it does not mean, to tell you what it does not mean. It is not an attitude. It is not an attitude because throughout the Old Testament, God does loving kindness. He performs loving kindness. This is an attitude. This is an action. This is a decisive action. Furthermore, it's not just a little bit of help or a little bit of love because scholars observe when loving kindness takes place, when God's loving kindness takes place, it takes place in the most helpless and hopeless of situations. This is not a little bit of assistance. This is nothing short of divine overpowering intervention. This is when God overwhelms the situation and he does it all. And it's not just promise keeping either. It's not just promise keeping either because scholars observe that loving kindness is so lavish. It produces results that only God can produce that cannot be matched. And here's the key. Here's the key. They could never be repaid. They could never be repaid. That is the nature of grace. And so loving kindness and by extension grace, it's not an attitude. It's not a little bit of help. And it's not just keeping promises. No, here is what it is. Here is what loving kindness and by extension grace is. It is God's unilateral intervention. God's unilateral intervention in the most helpless situation in a way that God alone can act with results alone he can produce. Loving kindness and by extension grace is God's unilateral intervention with activity that he alone can act with results that he alone can produce. That's the nature of loving kindness. And when we understand that, that explains a lot. This is the precise reason that loving kindness in the Old Testament describes how God delivers his people from their enemies, how God delivers his people from their enemies. Because whether you're Israel in the Exodus or Lot or David, when you're surrounded by the bad guy, there's nothing you can do. You're in a hopeless situation. And then God steps in. Then God steps in. That's loving kindness right there. That's grace. He steps in and he unleashes his omnipotent and miraculous might, totally transforming the situation and securing a deliverance that he can alone secure. That's the nature of grace. That's the nature of loving kindness. It is for this very reason that loving kindness describes how God preserves people's lives how God preserves people's lives. Because you see, when you're like the psalmist and you're dying, you're in a hopeless situation. And you ask, why? Because you're dying. There's nothing you can do. But then God steps in. That's loving kindness. That's grace. He steps in. He works with his omnipotent might to transform your health and restore it beyond anything that you could conceive of. That's the nature of loving kindness and grace. It is for this very reason that loving kindness describes the following situation in Psalm 107. You are dying of dehydration in the middle of the wilderness, in the desert. This is a hopeless situation. Why? Because you're dying. And you might say, oh, does God give you a cup of water? That'd be pretty miraculous. Yes, it would be, granted, but that's not what he does. Instead, this is what he does. Psalm 107 says, he raises up an inhabited city in the middle of nowhere so that you are sustained for the rest of your life. And you say, I didn't see that one coming. Exactly. That's the point. That's the nature of grace. God unilaterally intervenes in a way that he can alone act with results that he can alone produce. That's grace. 
And it's for this very reason that in Psalm 136, it attributes God's loving kindness to causing the sun to rise every morning and to set every evening. This is not just niceness. This is God's omnipotent power that moves heaven and earth. That's the nature of loving kindness and grace. It is for this very reason that loving kindness describes God's act of forgiveness. God's act of forgiveness. Because when you sin against God, what can you really do? And the answer is nothing. We even understand this on a human level. It's for this very reason that when we sin against someone else, we sometimes say to them, what can I do to make this right? And deep down inside, you know, you can't do a thing. You can't even do a thing in that situation on a human to human level. How much more, how much more can you do nothing on a human divine level? There's nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do. This is a hopeless situation when you sin against God. But then God steps in. That's grace. And he intervenes. And he resolves the situation in a way that he alone can, producing results that he alone can produce as he reconciles us to himself. Grace and loving kindness. It's not just an attitude. It's not just nice. It's not just a present or gift. It's not just faithful to do what you're supposed to do. No. Grace is God's almighty omnipotent, unilateral intervention for his people. It is him acting by himself in a way exclusive of himself for himself. Because in grace, God does it all from beginning to end. So therefore it must be about his glory. Grace is God's unrestricted, omnipotent power invading the most helpless situation to transform it to results that go beyond your imagination. Grace is all that God is intervening for all those whom he loves. <coughs> that's the nature of grace. And that's exactly at the core of Paul's definition of grace. That's at the core of Paul's definition of grace. Think about 2 Corinthians 12, verse nine with me. My grace is sufficient for you, my power Did you catch that? Power parallels grace because grace is not just niceness. Grace is a function of God's power. 2 Timothy 2 says, be strong in grace. You can't be strong in presence or niceness, but you can derive strength from God's almighty power that drives the universe. That will get you home. It is for this very reason that the reformers, along with modern scholars like Moshe Silva, will say that grace is Paul's shorthand way of talking about God's saving activity in Christ. God's saving activity in Christ. When you talk about saving activity, that's not niceness, gift, or kindness. That's intervention. That's divine intervention. That's the nature of grace. So far, what we have seen is that loving kindness is the foundation of grace. And loving kindness in the Old Testament is not just niceness. It is God's omnipotent, overwhelming, overpowering intervention. And Paul focuses that on salvation. He focuses that on salvation. And that's not only salvation in justification, although that is absolutely included, but it is the whole breadth of salvation from beginning to end. Because in Titus chapter two, talking about God's saving work in Christ on the cross, it describes it this way. This is God's grace revealed. God's grace revealed. Why? Because the cross doesn't just happen because God is nice, but because God intervened. He invaded time and space, redemptive history, this dark and depraved world. And what he did... Thank you, brother. What he did as a result of that, what he did as a result of that is drive the cross. Grace 
drives the cross. Grace, that kind of grace, is what causes the cross. This is the precise reason not only that the cross is caused by grace, but by our conversion is caused by grace. Because in Galatians 1.6, it says this, that God called us in grace. And Titus 3.5 reminds us that our regeneration is according to grace. We are converted. We are saved, not just because God is nice, but because God invaded our lives. He intervened and he overpowered us so that blind eyes can see and he drew us to ourselves. He intervened in grace. Grace, this kind of grace causes conversion, but not just conversion, sanctification. Because in Romans chapter five, it says that in this grace we stand in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it talks about how God's grace abounds to us unto every good work. The reason we persevere and the reason we are transformed is not just because God is nice, but because God intervenes and he invades our life and he drives us to those sanctified ends and he holds us fast. That is why we are sanctified. It is because of that kind of grace. And it's not just sanctification, it's glorification. Because in Titus 3, 7, it says this, that having been justified according to grace, we now have the hope of eternal life. The reason that we are glorified is not just because God's a nice guy, but because he invades our lives, overcomes our mortal bodies with his omnipotent power to transform us into a glorified body that is acceptable and can receive the eternal kingdom. God's grace is not just niceness. It is his omnipotent, overwhelming, overpowering intervention unto salvation from beginning to end. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about grace. And when we understand grace, not just as attitude, but God's saving action, an action that is decisive with the saving agenda, I think you understand why he prayed this for Timothy. I think you understand why he prayed this for Timothy, because Timothy has a long road ahead of him. He's not only perhaps a timid guy, but he's going to lose his mentor very soon. And what do you need in a situation when you have a long, hard road of faithfulness ahead of you? Paul knew what Timothy needed, and he didn't just need a little bit of help, a boost, a present, some niceness. No, what Timothy needed, what Paul knew Timothy needed was nothing short of divine intervention. God to come down from heaven and grab hold of Timothy's life and drive the agendas of salvation to beginning from beginning to end and to never stop until the job is done and done above and beyond what we could ever expect or imagine. It is that which drives you to faithfulness to the very end. Paul knew what Timothy needed. He needed grace. Grace is the power for faithfulness, and grace is sufficient. I know some of us here, we are frail, we are discouraged, we might even be demoralized, and here's what we need to remember. Here's what we need to pray for, grace, grace. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I know that's the theologically correct answer. Everyone's supposed to say that, but really, are you sure about this? I mean, is it really sufficient? Is it really powerful enough? That's a great question. It's a very logical question. If grace means niceness or kindness, but it doesn't. Grace means God's unilateral intervention in your life. The intervention that derives its power in activities like God sustaining the entire universe. I think that's enough to get us home. Grace is sufficient. Others of us are thinking, but, but you don't understand I feel totally overwhelmed. I'm out of my league. I'm at my wit's end. I feel absolutely helpless. Are you sure that grace is enough by definition? 
by definition, grace operates in the most helpless and hopeless situations. By definition, grace is sufficient. This is its speciality. This is its speciality. Still, some of you might be thinking, but I can't see anything good working out of this situation. I can't see people's lives being transformed, my circumstances transformed. I can't see any of that. Remember, grace by definition, it produces results that only God can produce, that which goes above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Now, we're not health and wealth preachers here, and we're not trying to suggest that everything will be rosy in this life, but God's plan of salvation will go through. He will complete it. And when it is done, you will know it was more than anything you could ask for or imagine. God's grace is sufficient. It'll get you home. We know that last words are important words. We know that last words are important words, and they accentuate what is vital and necessary. And for Paul, he knew what to say in his last words. This is what you need. You need grace. And having said that, and having accentuated that, and having rightly defined it, do we cling to God's grace? Do we rest in it? Do we rely on it? We need to, because that is the power for salvation. That is the power for faithfulness. Well, this brings us to the second point, the second observation we need to make about Paul's final words. And it's not just about the power for faithfulness, but the practice of faithfulness, the practice of faithfulness. Having just said everything that I just said, grace is not merely power. And we know that because grace has a particular way of working. It has a very particular result, specific operation. And in Paul, as we noted, it is driving at salvation from beginning to end. It completes salvation from beginning to end. And this is very important because sometimes we treat grace like a blank check. We get to determine what grace does. We control what it does. We know what it's going to do. It is a means to our end. That's how we treat grace. It's like the force of Star Wars. But grace is not that. It is not that. Grace has particular results. Therefore, you don't control grace. Grace controls you. You don't get to define grace. Grace defines you. This is the precise mistake people have made in the recent debates on sanctification. They say, I just want a grace-driven life and I can just go on my merry way. Well, grace doesn't work that way. Grace has particular results. It will drive you to holiness, sanctification, and obedience, a life of faithfulness the way Paul has specified. Grace and sanctification drives your human responsibility. It doesn't get you out of it. In fact, Paul had this very idea in mind in his final words. Paul had this very idea in mind in his final words. Notice the language, grace be with you. Pay attention to that preposition. Grace be with you. It's not grace to you. It's not grace for you. Grace be with you. Paul envisions grace along your side, constantly as a companion, determining, shaping, molding, and defining you. Grace be with you is Paul's prayer not only for power for faithfulness, but a certain practice of faithfulness. It is for this very reason that Paul concludes many of his letters with the phrase, grace be with you, because having written just what he'd written, he prays to God that he would intervene in your life such that you would be empowered to do what he just wrote about. Grace be with you is not merely a statement for the power of faithfulness. It is a statement of a certain practice of faithfulness, 
a certain practice of faithfulness. And then given the context of 2 Timothy, which is this capstone epistle, he is drawing from everything he has written. This prayer is comprehensive. It includes everything that he has ministered about and everything he has written about. Again, Paul's prayer, grace be with you, is not about power for faithfulness merely. It is about a certain practice of faithfulness. Grace should shape your life. And that is what Paul is praying for. Well, what does that look like? What does grace be with you look like? Well, to answer that question, since 2 Timothy is this capstone epistle, the way you go about it is you walk through all of his epistles and look at how he's used grace and how it shapes your life. And that should answer everything. And in doing so, I hope that this following list of 10 items, and don't worry, we'll go through them rapidly, will convict you as much as they convict me. And I hope you also find that they are quite counterintuitive. They're quite counterintuitive to our whole mindset about American ministry. But with that, let's talk about the first one, lowliness. Grace drives lowliness. In Romans chapter 12, in the context of spiritual gifts, Paul says, on account of grace, I urge you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And that makes sense with the definition of grace because grace is God's intervention. And in the context of spiritual gifts, he's invading our lives and empowering us to ministry. He's doing it all. (coughs) So he should get all the credit. That goes with the territory. Well, that means we should be lowly because he's everything. And that raises a very important question. Sometimes we exaggerate our own importance in ministry. We try to leverage that in social media. In fact, we use social media for influence and we believe that we just need to have a lot of reach. We need to have a lot of reach. But grace drives us to do the opposite. Grace drives us to be the opposite. We're not the guru. We're lowly. We're lowly. Along that line, you have contentment. Contentment. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says, according to grace, he laid a foundation upon which other people build. Paul, with that language of according to grace, he's reminding the Corinthians, all that I did was based upon God's intervention in my life to give me the agenda that I had and to empower me to do it. That's all I did. All I did was what God wanted me to do. Nothing more and nothing less. Paul's content in what God has for him. That's it. Our mindset sometimes is bigger and better. In fact, we think bigger is better. And we yearn for what other people have. But the demand of grace is this. You be content with what God gave you. You delight in what God gave you. We don't need to manipulate our way to growth. Grace demands us to be content. Third, hard work. Hard work. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul talks about how he is what he is by the grace of God, and he worked harder than any other apostle, but not him, but the grace of God working in him. And that makes sense with the definition of grace, because grace is not just niceness. Grace is God's intervention, his almighty intervention in Paul's life. And so, of course, he's going to work beyond himself. He's empowered by God. Are our ministries known for working so hard that the only explanation for them is the grace of God? Is that what our ministries are known? It needs to be. That would be what it looks like if grace is with us. Fourth, sanctification. Sanctification. Romans 6, we are so familiar with this passage. We're not under law, we're under grace. And just like we've been talking about, grace has a particular way of operating. It has very specific results, and it results in sanctification, which is part of salvation. That's what it does. And so Romans 6 talks about 
being like Christ and being slaves of righteousness. Here's a question. A grace-filled ministry produces people who are not powerful, but who are like Christ. People who are not powerful, but people who are like Christ. Is that us? Is that us? Grace would demand it. So here's the fifth one. It's a specific area of sanctification, speech. Ephesians 4.29, Colossians 4.6, we're very familiar with these passages. In order that our words would impart grace, that our words would be found in grace. And we know that grace is God's intervention into our lives to drive forth sanctification. And Paul's question is that our words must facilitate that. Our words must facilitate that. Well, do they? If we looked at our personal communication, our text messages, our social media, is that us? Has grace affected that area of our lives. Here's the sixth one, thankfulness, thankfulness. In Romans 7.25, 1 Corinthians 10.30, 15.57, 2 Corinthians 2.14, 8.16, 9.15, and Colossians 3.16, Paul says and uses the word, you can hear it later on the recording. So the, um, <laughs> or just search for it. That would work too. The Greek word grace is used for thankfulness. The Greek word grace is translated as thankfulness. This is a great translation, but there's a real point behind it because God's grace, God's grace should automatically come in thankfulness in our lives. The reason grace is used for the word thankfulness is because it's reflecting that we are thankful for what God has done in our lives. Grace is the natural outcome of, our thankfulness is the natural outcome of grace. Sometimes when we get together and talk about ministry, we have a tendency to complain. <coughs> we say things like, oh yeah, you got that woman in your church, Genesis 3.16 woman. She's so rebellious. She doesn't submit. And then you say, oh, that's nothing. I got Alexander and Hymenaeus in my church and they're shipwrecking themselves and they're shipwrecking everybody else. And then somebody else comes along and says, that's nothing. You see that boy over there? He's the next antichrist. <laughs> He's the antichrist. I'm telling you, watch for him. <clears throat> really, really. We tend to complain. We tend to complain. But grace should make us the most profusely and profoundly thankful people because we recognize how God has intervened in our lives for good. Seventh, along with thanksgiving, generosity. Generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8.1, Paul says, I want to make known the grace working in the lives of the Macedonians, that it transformed them, that they first gave themselves to God, then to us, and then on top of that, they gave of themselves sacrificially. Grace drives generosity. So often in ministry, we think of only what we lose. We think of what we give up relative to time, our finances. But Paul says, grace would drive you to the opposite. It would drive you to be generous and giving. Because as we know, grace operates along a very specific line. It operates in, with very particular results. It drives us to be conformed to Christ. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, Christ gave of himself sacrificially, so you should too. You should too. Eighth, forgiveness. Forgiveness. In passages like Colossians 3.13, Ephesians 4.32, and 2 Corinthians 2.7, Paul uses the word grace, but it is translated in our Bibles, rightly so, as forgiveness. And this is totally legitimate because, as we know, God's act of forgiveness is an act of grace. So Paul, by extension, is making an analogy. He is saying, when you forgive, you are reflecting 
You are reflecting and imitating God's intervention in your life. This very wordplay on grace reminds us you are never more like Christ than when you forgive. You are never more like Christ than when you forgive. Are our ministries so forbearing? Or do they hold bitterness and grudges? Or do they lavish forgiveness? A grace-driven ministry. Grace being with us. Well, that's what it would look like. Ninth, the glory of God. The glory of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 12, it says this, that the name of God will be glorified in us according to grace. The very grammatical construction here shows that grace has one direction. The foundation of grace has one direction, and that is to the glory of God. In fact, that's how grace works by definition. Because as we said, grace is God doing it by himself in a way exclusive of himself for himself. He is doing it all. Therefore, it must be all about him. By definition, grace has one direction to the glory of God. Well, in an age of celebritism and social media, we often want to attract attention to ourselves. We want prominence and we want honor. We want the spotlight. But grace does the opposite. It says none of us in all glory be to Christ. That's what grace does. And along that line, 10th, weakness. Weakness. We're back to the familiar passage of 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And in context, Paul is helping us understand that weakness doesn't disqualify you from ministry. Weakness is the greatest badge of honor in ministry because it showcases God's grace. And that is by definition. That is by definition because grace is not just niceness. Grace is God's unilateral intervention. He is doing it all and he is 100%. And if he's 100%, we have to be a zero. We have to be a zero. Grace demands weakness. Sometimes in ministry, we're tempted to look cool and hip and be accepted. But, and we have expectations of that. But we have to realize this. We're nothing, We're losers. We're the least. We're a zero because grace demands weakness. Sometimes in our suffering and our trial, we kind of ask God, where's the grace, God? Where's the grace? Well, that's a great question to ask if grace means niceness or if grace means kindness, but it doesn't. Grace is God's unilateral intervention. He is 100%, which demands us to be Zero. So where is the grace in trial? The trial is part of the grace. The trial is necessitated by grace. Why? Because grace demands weakness. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says, don't fight the trial, embrace it. Embrace it. Why? Because grace demands weakness. Grace demands weakness. So what does it mean that grace be with you? What does that look like when grace is with you and thereby shaping and molding your life? In Paul's own words, he says it this way. That's a life in ministry that is lowly, content, hardworking, sanctified, having wholesome speech, thankfulness, generosity, forgiving, all about the glory of God and thereby full of weakness. When Paul prayed these last words, grace be with you, he wasn't just praying for the power for faithfulness. He wanted a certain practice of faithfulness. And that's what he was praying for. That was what was on his heart. That's what he cared about. And these are his final words. That's what he really cared about. Do we? Do we? 
is this what we cling to? Is this what we are conformed to? It needs to be because Paul prayed for a certain practice of faithfulness, a certain practice of faithfulness. Well, this brings us to one final word of Paul's final words. It's the last word he ever wrote. It's the last word he ever wrote, and that's the word you. Grace be with you. And from this word, we get the pattern of faithfulness, the pattern of faithfulness. And when we think about the word you, we might at first say, well, what's the big deal? It's talking about Timothy. Okay, let's move on. Look, every word so far has been significant, and this word is no exception. In fact, this is what I would suggest to you. This is the most significant word. This is the most significant word because from it, all other words derive their meaning, significance, and fullest impact. This is the most significant word. And to understand this, what we have to do is we have to go back to the very beginning of Paul's ministry, back to the Damascus Road. And on the Damascus Road, we need to answer the following question. And the question is this, what did Paul exactly see on the Damascus Road? I'm not talking generically. I mean, specifically, what did Paul see? And to answer that question, we need to actually go back to the Old Testament because Paul is not the first person to ever have a vision at his calling. No, we know Isaiah did. Isaiah did. We're familiar with Isaiah chapter six. I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up. And Isaiah later says that he saw God's glory fill the earth. We know that. And Isaiah has a vision of salvation. He has a vision of salvation. And let me give you three quick observations to prove that. First, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. God sends an angel to put a coal on his mouth and says, your sins are atoned for. This is a vision of salvation. Isaiah says that Israel has eyes, but do not see. They are spiritually blind, but later on in the book, it will be revealed that God will open their eyes through the suffering servant. This is a vision of salvation. In Isaiah 6, we know, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. That phrase, high and lifted up, the next time it occurs in Isaiah is in Isaiah 52, 13, referencing the suffering servant referencing the suffering servant. God says this, my servant will be successful. He is high and lifted up. Why is the servant successful? Why is he high and lifted up? Well, in context, it is because he successfully accomplished the saving and atoning work in Isaiah chapter 53. That is why he is high and lifted up. And so Isaiah reveals in his whole book that what he actually saw in Isaiah 6, is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and in triumph because he successfully fulfilled saving his people from their sins. That's what Isaiah saw. He saw a vision of salvation. But he's not the only one to have a vision of his calling. We have Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees God's chariot throne. He sees a wheel within a wheel. We're familiar with this. And Ezekiel also says explicitly, he says, I saw God's glory fill the earth. Where have we heard that phrase, God's glory fill the earth? Isaiah. Ezekiel is claiming, I saw the same thing Isaiah did. I saw the same thing Isaiah did. Ezekiel though has his own emphasis and Ezekiel's emphasis is one on God's presence. What happens when he experiences the vision? He falls on his face. He falls on his face, helpless, like a dead man, And who must come into him to revive him? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This already anticipates what Ezekiel will later discuss, that God will put his spirit in all believers per the new covenant, according to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel has a vision of God's presence. And Daniel has a vision too. We see it in Daniel chapter seven. 
We see it in Daniel chapter seven, right in the middle of the book. And he says this, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. What does that sound like? Isaiah, because he sees the same thing as Isaiah does. And he sees the throne and he describes it this way. This throne has wheels of fire, wheels of fire. Who described God's throne having wheels, a wheel within a wheel? Ezekiel. And so Daniel sees the same thing as Isaiah and Ezekiel. Same vision, same event but he has his own emphasis on this and his emphasis concerns how the son is exalted by the saints of every nation, tribe, and tongue. How the son is exalted by the saints of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And within this, there's a very particular connection we need to make for this discussion. And that is this, the son and the saints, they are connected. The son and the saints are connected. You see in Daniel chapter 7, 14, the son receives all glory, honor, and power. And in Daniel 7, 27, it says this, The saints receive all glory, honor, and power. Why are they receiving the same thing? Because they are connected. And so Daniel sees the same vision as Isaiah and Ezekiel. And Daniel focuses on how the son is exalted by the saints of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Daniel makes a connection between the son and the saints. So far, what we have observed is that Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel have all seen the same thing. And here's my suggestion to you. Paul saw the same thing as them. Paul saw the same thing as them on the Damascus road. And it's actually not that hard to prove it. What happens to Paul when he experiences the vision on the Damascus road? He becomes blind. He has eyes, but does not see, just like Isaiah talked about. Who does Paul receive having experienced the Damascus road? Ananias says, Paul, receive the Holy Spirit, just like Ezekiel talked about. And Paul's companions on the Damascus road, they are They are awestruck. They know something's happened, but they can't discern it. That is just like Daniel's companions in his own vision experience. Paul experiences the exact same thing as Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. He sees the same thing they do. Now, within this, within this, there's a very important connection you have to make, a very important detail, and that is this. Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul was a smart, alecky guy. He could have said to Jesus, well, technically, I'm not. Technically, I'm persecuting the church and not you. Now, we're very thankful that he did not say that, but it raises a very important point, which is this. The son connects himself with the church. The son connects himself with the church. And we saw in Daniel's vision earlier, which Paul has seen now, that the son is connected with the saints. Put two and two together. Put two and two together. The church is part of, of the saints of Daniel's vision of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The church is part of the saints of Daniel's vision of the saints of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Let me put it this way. What did Paul exactly see? What did he precisely see? He did not merely see the risen Christ. That is true. What he really saw, particularly, he saw the future of the church. He saw what the church would ultimately become, the saints of every nation, tribe, and tongue, exalting Christ. He saw the church's final destiny. That's what he saw. And that drives his entire ministry because now he knows what he needs to do. I need to make that happen. I need to make that happen. And that shapes his life and that shapes his epistles. We don't have much time to talk about the epistles too much, but let me just give you a quick evidence and proof and further justification for everything that I've been commenting on. And that is simply this. Have you noticed that Paul, he calls believers saints, like in Colossians or Corinthians, he calls us saints. Why? 
because he's pointing us back to Daniel's vision and he's saying, you are them, you are them. And you say, are you sure about that? Think about 1 Corinthians 6 with me. Notice Paul's wording. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the angels? When do saints judge angels? Daniel chapter seven. Paul is thinking whenever he uses the word saints, he is thinking of Daniel chapter seven. And that reminds us of our eschatological purpose and function in God's plan. But what we really need to focus on right now is not just the epistles, but really Paul's missionary work. It is his missionary work. It is his geographical movements. You see, every time Paul talks about geography, he goes to different places. It is not random. It is strategic and reflects a theology driven by the Damascus road. It's not random. It reflects a theology driven by the Damascus road. And we can see this. Think about Paul's missionary journeys. Think about Paul's missionary journeys in Acts. For example, his first one in Acts 13 through 14, Paul goes to geographical places that have Gentiles, budding Gentile populations. And there he is suffering persecution. There he experiences loss and cost. With that, Paul reminds us that the Gentile mission, it's a priority. It's a priority. Why? Because it costs him something. It's a priority. In the second missionary journey, Paul geographically, he goes to areas that are deeply Gentile, the heart of Gentile territory, places like Corinth and Athens. And there he faces a whole host of challenges. What does that remind us of? That Paul does not just show the priority of the Gentile mission, but the protocol. What do you do with all these challenges of the Gentile world? Do you just pander to them? You say, yeah, whatever. Do you just accept all those pagan ideas? No. What Paul shows us is that you take under everything the lordship of Christ. Everything should be subjected to the lordship of Christ. Every idea should bow the knee to the lordship of Christ. That's what he does in Athens. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, we're just one idea of many. No, Paul preaches the gospel and in preaching the gospel, he subjects every thought in Athens under the lordship of Christ. That's the protocol. That's the protocol. Third missionary journey. In the third missionary journey, Paul Geographically, he goes back to places where he's already ministered, strengthening the church, and he shows that the Gentile mission is permanent. It is permanent. The missionary journeys remind us that Paul's geography, it's not random. It's not random. It's strategic, deliberate, and reflects a theology of the Damascus Road. Every nation, tribe, and tongue as saints exalting Christ. And that same principle is in operation in Ephesus. In Ephesus, we know in Acts, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He also goes out of his way to meet the Ephesian elders. In fact, he wrote a letter there and he sends Timothy there. Why so much time in Ephesus? Why so much time in Ephesus? Simple, geographically speaking, Ephesus is the gateway to the pagan world. Ephesus is the gateway to the Gentile world. And so Paul knows you gotta have Ephesus to reach the Gentiles and you need a strong church in Ephesus to ensure that there will be a strong church everywhere in the Gentile world. So Paul pours a lot of resources into Ephesus. Geography has a theology to it. Geography has a theology to it. And when you understand that, actually, you understand a little bit of Paul's life at the end, especially as what he says in 2 Timothy 1 at the end. He says this, telling Timothy, all in Asia abandoned me. Do you remember reading that at the end of 2 Timothy 1? All in Asia abandoned me. And he's not talking about the Chinese there. He's talking about Asia Minor. He's talking about Ephesus. After spending all of that time and effort, everyone abandoned him. 
You need to understand this from a worldly perspective. From a worldly perspective, Paul's ministry ended in failure. From a worldly perspective, even the apostle Paul's ministry ended in failure because he invested, the place where he invested the most didn't pay out, didn't pay out. But Paul has a different perspective. He reminds Timothy of a righteous remnant there that encouraged him. He reminds Timothy, there's a different way to look at ministry, God's way. And we do well to look at ministry that way. All this to say is that geography in Paul, it's never random. It is strategic, deliberate, and reflective of a theology driven by the Damascus Road. Every time Paul speaks about geography, it is that way. It is operating with that rationale. And that's gonna be very important because there's a whole bunch of geography surrounding the context of 2 Timothy chapter four. Notice verses nine through 15. There's a whole bunch of geography It's talking about places like Galatia and Dalmatia and Ephesus in verses 19 through 21. You got more geography. You got different people and places mentioned. What is happening here in verses nine through 15 with Galatia and Dalmatia? What you have is Paul talking about the far southeastern corner of the Gentile world to the far northwestern corner of the Gentile world. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, I've worked my entire life to lay a pathway to lay a corridor, to lay a pipeline, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Timothy, you need to take that and run with it. Paul, with that, he is not just thinking about one place then. He is setting Timothy up and he is setting himself up to think about the saints in every place, to the ends of the earth, the saints in every place. And in verses 19 through 21, Paul, with mentioning people like Priscilla, Aquila, and Nesiphorus, he is also mentioning people like Erastus and Trophimus who are scattered along the pipeline that we have just discussed. He is reminding Timothy, these are the people you need to partner with. These are the people you need to partner with after I'm gone. They will help you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. With that, Paul is setting up for the future of the church. Paul is setting up for the future of the church. That means this, Paul is not just thinking about the present, he's thinking about the future. He's thinking about the saints for all time, the saints for all time. And so here's what we observe. At the very end of Paul's ministry, he is rigorously and absolutely faithful to what God commissioned him from the very beginning on the Damascus road. And when we understand that, it reminds us of this, that Paul is thinking then, not just of his own time, but he is thinking of the saints in every place for all time. The saints in every place for all time. And when you understand this, you can understand the word you. You can understand the word you. You see, because throughout 2 Timothy, you is always singular. You is always referring to Timothy. Even in 2 Timothy 4.22, a It is that way. The Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. It's singular and about Timothy. But in 2 Timothy 4.22b, Paul's very last word, it's not singular. It's plural. It's y'all or all y'all in certain dialects. Who is Paul thinking about? Who is Paul thinking about? And in context, we know who he's been thinking about, the saints of every place for all time. With that, Paul, in his dying moments, with that, Paul, in his dying prayer, he wasn't just praying for Timothy. He was praying for every believer in every place 
for all time. He was praying for the saints that he beheld on the vision on the road to Damascus. He was praying and laboring for them that they would be faithful, that they would find their power for faithfulness in God's grace alone, and that they would practice faithfulness as he had laid out in his ministry. Brothers, let me put it this way. When Paul was dying, on his dying moments, he's on his knees for you and for me, that we would be so faithful. With that, Paul sets the pattern for faithfulness because he deliberately sets these words, not just for Timothy, but for us. And therefore he is saying by that, it is your turn. It is your turn. I have prayed for you. It is your turn. And he sets the pattern of faithfulness because he is the pattern of faithfulness. Because when you are facing the situation that he is facing, life and death, you would be tempted to think about yourself and to be selfish. But what does Paul think about? Who does Paul think about? He prays for everyone but himself. And what he shows Timothy is that you can be faithful by the grace of God to the very end. And last words are powerful because they go beyond your time. And Paul has deliberately done so here. He has said to us, it is your turn. I'm praying for you. It is your turn. Last words are powerful because they take away fear and instill courage. And Paul has done that here because he has shown Timothy You can be faithful in the most dire of circumstances to your very last breath by the grace of God. Timothy, it is possible. We treasure Paul's final words, not only because of what they say to us, but because of what they show us, but because of what they show us. Last words are powerful words. And what we have learned broadly is that to understand Paul's last words, we've had to understand Paul as a whole. And that means the Pauline ministry is our ministry. We can never forget that the Pauline ministry is our ministry. And yes, I hope that we've learned something about Paul and the Damascus Road and saints and grace and the like. But I hope most of all that we have learned about faithfulness, that the power for faithfulness is God's grace and it is sufficient. And that there is a certain practice of faithfulness that Paul has laid out for us. And there is a pattern for that faithfulness. Paul has said, it is your turn. And I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. There is a song called Ancient Words, which reminds us of the great sacrifice accomplished or that accompanied the giving of God's word. And here's what we need to remember. There is blood in these words. There is blood in these words. Before he died, Paul knew what he needed to say to you He knew what he needed to say to you, even at the cost of his own life, there is blood in these words. And we dare not forget that, but rather we must be remembering them and driven by them and live them so that in the end, we would be faithful, just as Paul instructed us to be, just as he showed us to be, and just as he prayed for us to be. Thank you for your time.